Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles together. We're going to go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And today our study will be on verse 3. We started this study, the Sermon on the Mount, and let me just say how good it is to see everybody here today, and just again to express a welcome to those who are watching us online from wherever you may be. I'm excited about this series, and I'll need you to pray for me about this series because this is a monumental sermon. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever given as Jesus with the crowds gathering, assembling, people coming. And then he goes to a clearing place on a mountain and he sits down and he begins to teach. Now we want to be reminded, okay, we covered this last Sunday in the introduction and all of those links are available. You can get the sermons delivered to your whatever you listen to podcasts on or on the webpage so that you can not miss a Sunday and not miss a sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever Jesus' message is misunderstood or misinterpreted throughout church history, it's caused damage. It's been destructive. The church's testimony, the testimony of Christ, evangelism, it all deteriorates when this message is misunderstood. So remember this morning, beloved, this sermon is not a to-do list. It's not a to-do list that results in a person's salvation. This sermon is for those, now listen, here's the paradox, for, no, for those who know they cannot live by it. The sermon is a description of the upside-down life in the kingdom by that person, by those people who have been born again into God's kingdom. They've been driven to respond to God's mercy. Luther understood the law of God that we talked about last Sunday, Mount Sinai, and this sermon on the mount. Here's two different mountains. The law was given, and then Jesus is the one who interprets the law in this message. This is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he said it this way. Luther said, first, it shows the non-Christian that he cannot please God by himself and so directs him to Christ to be justified. Secondly, this sermon shows the Christian and the law on the mountain who has been to Christ for justification how to live so as to please God. So on one hand, it says you can't do it, but if you come to faith in Christ, and we see from Matthew 5, 3, if you embrace what Jesus says about the poor in spirit, then he threw you, what we studied in Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ, but now I live. Jesus said you have to lay down your life, and by laying down your life, that's how you get your life. That's how you keep your life. It's the paradox. We know this of the message of the kingdom. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said it this way. He said, what is of supreme importance is that we must always remember that the Sermon on the Mount is a description of character and not a code of ethics or morals. 
So if someone is looking for, how can I know that I'll have eternal life? Do not. The message, the response, the answer will never be, just read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, do all that you find therein, and you'll be fine. It sinks every one of us. Only God himself can bear up under Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and live it out perfectly. And what did we say as humans to this one who did this? Crucify him. It's very different than I'm poor in spirit and I need your mercy. Let's hear the words of this Savior King, Matthew chapter 5. And I won't do this all the way through, but we're close enough to the front that we'll start with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, there's the setting, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word, and we will study this today. Three questions, all right? Three questions, we want to unpack this. In future weeks, after we've handled the word blessed, the term blessed, we'll probably have two questions. Okay, what's the, what's the person, what's the description of character, and what's the blessing for that for that characteristic. But today we've got to unpack the word of blessing. If we're going to understand the blessedness of being poor in spirit, there's three questions we want to answer with this message from the text. And the first is this. Who are we talking about here? Who is Jesus talking about? Who are these individuals who are the blessed? The answer is this. Those who, their chief delight is in God. Who are the ones who are blessed? Their chief delight, their delight of all delights is in God. And these are the individuals that are known as, a translation of this word, happy. Your Bible might say happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is true happiness. Now, again, sometimes we have to get a definition and understanding of something by saying what it is not. Okay, there's a perceived happiness. If I ask you, you know, this question, what is it that you believe would make you happy? What would you fill in that category? I could be happy if, now what goes in that blank? If I just had a new job, if I just, this relationship, if I had that relationship, if I could get a pay increase, if my health was good, what, what goes in that blank, okay? That, that's the question for all of us, and all of us are putting something in that blank. Maybe day by day, maybe minute by minute, maybe that answer changes throughout the day, throughout the week. Well, if this, if this person was elected, then that's, that's where I would be happy. That's, that's my... Okay, now listen, if, any, if my answer to what I put in that blank is anything other than God himself, I'm going to lose it. I can't keep it. If I was just healthy, put that in the blank. If I'm healthy, then, then I'm going to lose my health one day. If I just had this relationship, then I would be happy. Then, I, then I'd, just be, I could, I'd be fine. Anything other than God. And all of these things are good things. We love being healthy, right? Relationships are great. But for anything that is a good thing to be placed in that category, it's taking a good thing and it's making it an ultimate thing, and therefore it's idolatry. 
There's only one relationship we can totally trust and never lose, and it's Jesus. So things and people make bad gods. They let us down, and we let others down. There's only one who knows everything about you, still loves you, died in your place for you. Well, never, if you have come into the kingdom, you've been born again, which is what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, then you've been born from above, you've been given life that never ends. I hope this microphone doesn't do this. It was fine. It behaved itself all for a service. Now here, I'm just going to have to freeze, all right? You're going to see, like, he's not moving, is he? You know, I don't know what it's doing. Yeah. So here we go, all right? Perceived happiness. Now, no mere human teacher would ever present this message, right? The crowds are growing. Jesus, look at all these people. You're building a following. The kingdom's about here, right? And then Jesus goes and drops this bomb of a message to where many people throughout his ministry heard his words and said, check, please. I'm going to go on back to the temple. I'm going to go on back to my way of life. That was just a little bit too much, like the first or last, the last or first. Are you kidding me? You know how hard I work to be first, to have that parking spot in this company, and you're telling me park out there by the guard shack? No way. Not doing it. And that works out in a thousand ways from all the companies and places you go in the course of a week. The empty are filled, and the filled he sends away empty. Remember Mary? Rejoicing in God, her Savior. The Magnificat. Luke 1.53, and she cries out, realizing what God had done for her, that she was indeed a person who was poor in spirit, recognized her need of a Savior, and she says, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. She was honestly saying, what have I done to deserve anything? He has filled me. I was empty, and he filled me. So there's a perceived happiness that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a promised happiness. There's a promised blessedness. That's what we want to dig into. That's what we want to get at. The happiness that Jesus described remains. It doesn't come and go. Don't we know that? How we can start off one day and it's a great day, and then you turn on the news, and then you drive 15 minutes to your job, and your day started off good, I went down the other day, and the boilers got water all over the floor in the basement. Okay. It's a little chilly right now, and then where are all the heating guys? They're all busy. They'll be here tomorrow afternoon. That's how it goes. If my day is, if I just have heat in the house, there, that's my day, you know? Well, (laughs) you lost your happiness. It was perceived. You have to have something more substantial. The happiness that Jesus described here remains. Why? Because The happiness of God's kingdom citizens, those are disciples, is intrinsically, directly connected, tied to God himself. Not the blessings that God gives. It's the giver, not the gifts. There are many people that will worship God if he gives them gifts, so they're actually worshiping the gifts, how easy that is to do, not the giver. They can't, then to sing and to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The giver gives and the giver has stopped giving. I will bless his name because he didn't owe me that gift in the first place. If I'm honest, 
I deserve hell. And he has given me life that never ends. We're going to see this term, this word. Makarios is the Greek word, and it's translated blessed. It's translated happy. You can translate it at times fortunate. It's a term that was used more than 30 times in the New Testament, about 30 times, and only two times are outside of Matthew and Mark, 28 times between the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. The, uh, Matthew and Luke, not, not Mark, Matthew and Luke. Jesus is here using covenant language. Now, covenant language is very different than karma, the notion, the invented idea of karma, okay? If you do good, and, and how easily this can creep into Christian thinking, that if I do good, then what should happen to me? Good. If I do bad, well, then, of course, something bad. So I'm going to try and do good. And, and understand, it's, it's a bartering system with whatever deity you are perceiving is on the other end of this bartering system. It is, it is not covenant language. And if we think about the false notion of karma, then we have to immediately just apply the principle, okay, if someone did good all of their life, they were perfect, then what should be the outcome of that person? Not the cross. Not crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. This is covenant language when Jesus is blessed. So there's blessing and there's cursing. There's blesses, there's curses. He's using covenant language here. If you think back to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. This is what the Lord covenanted with Abraham. He said, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, talking to Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This promise was fulfilled in Jesus, the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and narrowed down through David of his kingly line. Now Moses, when he was wrapping up his time on earth, he had, like a preacher will have, a message. And as he stood before his people that he loved dearly, and they were fitful people, Remember what, they, what he said about, okay, Joshua's going to be your leader. Oh, we're going to listen to Joshua like we listen to you, Moses. Now, if you're Joshua, you're thinking, hmm, didn't go so well, 40 years worth. This is great. Thank you for that promise. Looking forward to this. Okay, but listen to what Moses says as he's setting this covenant language before the children of Israel. There's two options, life and death, blessing and cursing, and he argued for them to choose life. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 19, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have done my job. Okay, this is my responsibility, this is my job, is to set before you life and death, and then you have to respond rightly to the word of God. Moses said, I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Choose life. 
cling tightly to the Lord. The book of Psalms opens with a pronouncement of blessing, blessing and cursing, Psalm 1. The first two verses, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the righteous person. This is the person Psalm 1 declared as blessed, but at the end, the wicked, the wicked will not stand in the judgment on the congregation of the righteous. There's judgment. So those who are truly blessed... Who is Jesus talking about here? Those whose chief delight is in God. These are the ones who are happy, truly blessed. These are the individuals who are in a right relationship to God, enjoying him, and then that works out horizontally. That if we, beloved, are in a right relationship with God, then that is how we can function together in the body of Christ as disciples, as citizens of his kingdom by his rule, by his authority, under his care. So we're going to share in family characteristics. I joke about it all the time. I married one, and I got three more. No one ever says, if they do, they're just trying to be nice to me, but I kind of know they're just flattery. No one ever says, oh, your daughter, she just looks so much like you. No, no, not at all. Not at all. There's family characteristics, though. There, some of their mannerisms are like me. Some of them not as good as they could be, right? I get, I get the pickup for those, okay? And it's fair. But we, sh- we, we share in these family characteristics as the people of God. These are the Beatitudes. We're not exa- exempt, beloved, from pain, from trials, and from suffering. When someone comes to faith in Christ, it is not a promise of health, wealth, and happiness. So we want to dispense of any notion that the gospel is about how you can have your best life now. It is our best life now and forever. And we want to see what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says this. He said, our Lord says that all other supposed blessings are mirages in the desert. They may promise much, they can supply nothing but disappointment. The only life that God blesses is the one marked by his values. They are the hallmarks of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Do you belong to the kingdom of God? So who are the blessed? Those who Their chief delight is in God. They are the blessed, the happy. Second question is this. What do those who are the blessed, what do they confess? What do they say? How do they talk? Their confession is this. We are the poor in spirit. That's us. This is probably not a popular t-shirt for fundraisers. Poor in spirit, bankrupt. You know, I got nothing. I'm nobody. People aren't going to spend a lot of money on on that campaign. But that is actually what it requires to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And to confess, I learned this probably in Sunday school, to say the same about. If somebody comes in and they give a confession, you do not want them inventing anything. 
Well, the story's pretty boring. I was sitting in the parking lot. I saw the guy run out, and he was, you know, had all the money and had somebody, and I hit him with my car, and there he is. Okay, you don't want them inventing anything. Well, that sounds pretty bad, so... I got out of my car, and I said, hey, would you mind coming over and talking with me, and let's, let's see if we can work this out, and I negotiated with him. Was that what really happened? No, but it sounds better. That's not a confession, then. To confess is to say the same about. What does God say about me? I need to say the same thing. If I'm not saying the same thing that God is saying, I'm lying. I'm in trouble, and I need that lie to be dashed, to be exposed. So our confession is we're the poor in spirit. What does that mean? We're spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. That we say humbly, boldly, I am empty. This is the fatal condition of sinners. And beloved, listen to me now. Religion is useless in trying to fill this void, this emptiness. It cannot solve this dilemma. The Apostle Paul, he would write in Romans chapter 3, because we're all sinners, verse 19, he says, now we know, this isn't up for grabs, beloved. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, often when I share the gospel with people and have those precious opportunities and people say, well, I've never killed anybody. I think I'll be all right. Ah, me and, me and the man, up, we're, we're good. We're on good terms. Okay, you're not on good terms if you refer to God who created everything as the man upstairs or any other derogatory term in that way. The law stops our mouth so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if we go through the Ten Commandments, we go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is going to show us all we have a serious discrepancy here. There's a problem here. I don't measure up. So the the poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt. And from Psalm chapter 40 and verse 17, the cry from the Old Testament, the psalmist says, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Help. That's what kids cry out every now and then, help. If you're in trouble, you cry, help. I'm trapped. I'm stuck. I can't help myself. I need to be rescued. That's what the psalmist is saying. So the poor are those who are utterly and abjectly dependent upon God alone. Now, there's two words used in the New Testament. In the Greek, there's two words that talk about uh, being down in your finances. All right, One is penikros. That means you're poor. It's poverty. It's bad. But you still have something. You're not completely devastated yet. You still have something behind either the decimal point or before the decimal point in your bank account. You still have something there. There's another word that is ptokos. This word means you have nothing. You are completely dependent for support. You're destitute. 
There's absolutely no means of self-support. Now, where is this word used? We studied through the Gospel of Luke some years ago. In Luke chapter 21, we meet, we meet this woman that always puzzled me, the, the widow woman. And she's giving the offering. Everybody's coming through giving their offerings. And it must have been quite the scene. You know, today is the day we're receiving uh, a special love offering for the retirement of the debt. 7,000 is left. How the Lord has provided in this year. Praise his name. 96,000 where we began, then COVID. And now we're at 7,000 left and we are debt free. And we're meeting with the architect this week to begin plans for the future of what God is going to do. But here's the deal. They're sounding all kinds of, you know, bells and whistles and trumpets of, dun, da, 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 here's my giving. Wow, that was amazing. And then in comes the, the widow with the two mites, the two copper coins. And she wants no attention. She wants no fanfare. She doesn't want anybody to notice how little this is. And Jesus observes and Jesus noticed and he said, guys, did you see her? Did you understand she gave more than they all? Because she gave out of her, and he uses this word, destitution. She gave everything. There was nothing left. And this always puzzled me. How do we, you know, how do we use this message in giving? I've heard messages on giving, like, hey, be like the widow. She gave everything. I'm like, hang on a second. Is that really? But Jesus didn't say, go and do likewise. Well, now we need the context. There she is. She's giving her last everything to this religious establishment. This religious establishment with corrupt leaders that one day are going to march Jesus outside the city and hang him on a cross. Those religious leaders, they should have said, hang hang on a second, dear woman, this is probably down to quite low in your account, isn't it? You know what? Thank you for your, your love and your generosity that you want to help. But actually, we've collected and we're going to give to you. We're not here to take from you. We're here to serve you. But no one was poor in spirit in that crowd that day, only Jesus. And he looked on the situation. And then right after that, the disciples say in Luke 21, Jesus, look at this beautiful temple. Look at the, it's reflecting the sun. And isn't it gorgeous? And Jesus is thinking of that woman who's being crushed under that religious oppressive system. And she's willing to give everything to try and indenture God. Come to my behalf. Come to, come to rescue me. Here I gave everything. And the religious leaders are there saying, yeah, and you should. And Jesus is saying, it's all coming down. Because that isn't how you merit eternal life. That's not how you receive eternal life. Because then, how did you receive eternal life? I gave my last two copper coins. Where does the glory belong then? To the woman who gave her last two copper coins. And Jesus does not bless it. He does not say, go do likewise. So we won't have an offering that says, do you still have a car outside? Then go ahead and sign the title over because you haven't been like the widow with two mites yet. Uh, You still have a sweater. You still have, you know, glasses. You still have some shoes. This woman gave everything, but she gave everything in the false hopes that that religious system that had been overrun by perverted individuals would do something for her, and the one who noticed her, loved her, saw her, he would do something for her, and he would give his life. The person who comes into the kingdom 
comes the way of saying, I'm empty. It doesn't sound like this. Do you know how much I'm in church? Do you know I was baptized? I'm in. I, I was baptized. Do you know I've always believed? Say that the opposite way. I've never needed to say that I was empty. I was born with enough. But that's not what Jesus says. Matthew here, he clarifies. He goes beyond what Luke said. When we went through Luke, Luke said, just gave the shortened version, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there are some people throughout church history like, oh, so I guess what we got to do, we got to get rid of all our stuff. Let's go live in a cave. I mean, we can kick the groundhog out of the hole down there on the property. We'll just, we'll just live there. And then people will drive by and like, look, those people gave away their houses and they live out there. The poor groundhog doesn't have a home now. Is that accomplishing anything? No, not for salvation. Not at all. So Matthew clarifies poor in spirit. James Montgomery Boyce, he says it this way. He said, the poor in spirit are those who are poor in the inward man. Poor in the inward man. John Calvin says it this way. He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. Does that describe you? Beloved, this is the question you have to say, asking yourself, have I been reduced to nothing in me? Because that means that I'm, I'm relying completely on the mercy of God. This is what it is to be poor in spirit, to be poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're not poor in spirit, you have no share in the kingdom of heaven. This matters. Your life and eternity hangs upon is this found in you? Because our confession is, I'm empty, and we follow that up with the, Lord, fill me. Please, fill me. I need you. And we believe the gospel, and we receive Christ. We trust in him. To quote something from James Montgomery Boyce again, he says this. He says, I am an empty vessel. What does that mean? If you will say that, if you will confess, I'm empty, Lord, fill me, then God will fill you with the life of Jesus Christ supernaturally, and you will begin to live the standards of the Sermon on the Mount by the power of the one who gave them and who gave himself, and he lived them perfectly in this world. In Revelation chapter 3, this will come up in our study guides. These are available uh, we'll be this week, uh, groups meeting this afternoon, our house this evening, Thursday night. We'll be in chapter one. And this reference comes up because of Revelation chapter three. We're not gonna take the time to read that now. But the Laodicean church, and Jesus comes to the church, it's the last church that he says, the seven letters to these seven churches. And this church is messed up. They're lukewarm. And this is their proclamation. And Jesus is saying this, so it's true. Revelation 3.17, Jesus says, For you say, Laodiceans, about yourself, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Okay, Look at us. We're big, we're beautiful, we're doing things, and that's what they're saying. But Jesus says, not realizing that you are, here's the true 
assessment of the Laodicean church. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Can we all agree there's a huge discrepancy between what the church was saying about, you know, on their banner outside or whatever, we are an amazing church, and Jesus says you're not amazing. There's a real problem here. And this is where Jesus says he can't even get in his own church. Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open up, I'll come in. I want to be with you. I want to fellowship with you. I can't even get in. He's not talking to a person. He's talking to a church. Isn't he supposed to be the head of the church? He can't even get in. No, you're going to mess us up, man. We do this at this time. We do that at the other time. We got it all figured out. Don't need you. But we'll use your name. He says, open the door. Let me in. The cost of redemption, beloved, is not attained through self-righteousness, but through God's righteousness. Remember our Galatians study? The gospel is not about what we can do. It's about what God has done. Psalm 49, verse 8, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. What is required for the ransom of your life for my life? A life. See, the question is not, will there be punishment for my sin? The question is, who's going to bear the punishment for my sin? Either Jesus did, and I trust him in faith, give my life to him, or I will. Or you will. First Peter chapter 1, Peter just is filled with joy. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do you remember the hymn, Rock of Ages? Augustus Top Lady is said to have written this and he was uh, in a, out in, it got caught in a horrible, life-threatening storm. And he found a place in a rock, and there he took refuge. Thought he was going to die, and out of it comes the song, this song about being poor in spirit. It'll come up on the screen. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That's the two things. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Verse 3 is this message in one verse of a hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Someone who's poor in spirit, they sing this. Foul, I too. That's not a bird. 
That's dirt. I'm, I'm dirty. I'm polluted. I'm perverted. I'm a sinner. Foul I to the fountain fly. What's the plea? Wash me, Savior, or I die. This is the person who's poor in spirit. This person and this person alone can embrace and sing verse 4 when we come to our final enemy. There's nothing else that will protect us and cover us like saying, I'm poor in spirit, fill me. It's very different than, do you know what I've done? Do you know this? I'm that. I'm part of this. I'm all, no, no, no. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, and behold thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself. In thee. That's our only place for refuge. There's no organization. There's no church. There's no amount of money, no serving, no doing that we can do that can ever account for what Christ has done for us. Can you sing that song? I'm empty. Lord, fill me. And lastly, third question, what have we been given? The poor in spirit, those who can sing, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. We've been given the kingdom of heaven. What have the poor in spirit been given? Ours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does this mean? What is this worth? Can I take this and, you know, go to the bank tomorrow and say, hey, I'd like to take out a loan. I'm going to be building a new church. I'll just put it in my name. And what's your collateral? The kingdom of heaven. Just put that down. Kingdom of heaven. Go ahead. We'll build. Can you do, is that how this works? No. But this is present standing and eternal security. To be a person of the kingdom, it gives us a present standing that we're, we're blessed right now. And an eternal security. What we're saying is this. God has given me everything that I need and so much more. He's not given me what I deserve. He, we, do, listen, every now and then we all ask the question, is this fair? Kids ask that question. We ask the question as adults, this doesn't seem fair. Beloved, take that question to the cross. Is that fair? What Jesus died for me, is that fair? It's not fair but it's love. It's his justice. Theirs is the kingdom. This is a present standing, beloved. We are blessed right now. And how is this made possible? By the love of God, God's sovereign and unmerited free grace. 
So Paul the Apostle would write in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Anybody else ever done that? They looked on your need, and they had plenty, and they sold it all, gave it all away, and gave it to you. But the God who made everything, that's exactly what he did. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why? So that you by his poverty might become rich. And we're not just talking about money in your pocket and a nicer car and a bigger house. All that stuff will go the way of all the earth. We're talking about something much more substantial, and it's the kingdom of heaven. Have you admitted your spiritual bankruptcy to God? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Stick with that question. Have I ever in my life admitted I am empty? I am bankrupt. My resume is, I've told lies, I've not put you first all the time, I've looked with lust, I've coveted, I've not been content. My resume is a mess. I'm empty. I'll be honest. I'll say what you say about me, but at the same time, I can also say that I'm loved, undeservedly loved. Have you ever said that? Spurgeon said it this way, the way to rise in the kingdom is the sink in ourselves. You see, this is the first beatitude in every, it's not like, same with the fruit of the spirit. It's not, well, I'm gonna go with love and joy, but the rest of them, nah, I don't need those. No, it's, it's not like that. Like, I like bananas, I like oranges, don't like apples. No, it, it's, a, it's a whole package deal. The same goes with the, the beatitudes. And every one, every beatitude springs forth into the next beatitude. And it's like the Psalms of Ascent. We're going to be moving up. And at the same time we're moving up, these beatitudes move right down deeper and deeper. And they cut deeper and deeper into our souls. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. Theirs is the kingdom Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice that Jesus is not saying theirs will be. It's coming. He's saying it is. Theirs there's is the kingdom of heaven. So we have a present standing and we have eternal security that we're blessed forever. And I want you to think about my responsibility is not to stand and, and scream and be angry and scare people. Okay, there's... There's some, that's the approach they take. What's a better approach? Is to simply set forth Jesus. It's not for you to look at you and look at me and look at each other and compare and compare and compare. Enough of that. You want to know your true standing? Look to God like Isaiah did. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And then he saw himself in a true size. And the Lord refined him in Isaiah 6 and used him. Look to God. Think about the love. Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. I mean, does that sound like a really angry preacher? 
Fear not, little flock. That sounds like somebody who is really good with kids. Ah, oh, come here. Don't be afraid. Generally, it doesn't work. Like, do not fear, little flock. You know, it's not going to be that kind of a tone. Well, now I'm scared of you. I was scared of the wolf, and now I'm scared of you. Fear not, little flock. Okay, why? Okay, understand, if Jesus is saying you're afraid right now, you're in fear right now, so Jesus, it's not going to work if you just say, don't think about being afraid, don't think about being afraid, I'm not thinking about being afraid, don't think about being afraid, don't, that's not going to work. I'm still afraid. So he's going to replace the fear, let me give you something. Let me give you something that you can sink down into, that you can anchor your life in. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's no small gift. That's no chump change. That's not leftover scraps. That's not yesterday's, you know, bread. This is, fear not, little flock, your father. It's his good pleasure. Now, I don't always give gifts like that. Sometimes I can be a good gift giver. Sometimes I'm like, ugh. It's his good pleasure. That's what he wants to do. And what prevents this from happening? When someone says, I want my kingdom. I'm not empty. I'm not poor. I'm not blind. I'm not wretched. I'm whatever. Fill in the blank. What do you miss? The good pleasure of the Father to give you the kingdom. That's a big miss. In Luke chapter 18, there's an example of someone who missed it. An illustration of how to not respond to this message, the message of Jesus. And it's the rich young ruler, and if you turn there, Luke chapter 18, I'm not going to read the whole account. You can jot that down there on your worship guide, and you can read it later and just and, and think through this man who comes to Jesus I said it last week, we don't regard Jesus as, first of all, primarily, he's a good teacher. No, he's my Savior. Now I'm listening to him with my heart. And he, this young ruler comes to Jesus, and he says to him in verse 18, or yes, 18 of Luke chapter 18, he said, and the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He didn't say he was wrong. He's just asking him, do you know who you're talking to? And then he lists the commandments. And the young ruler's like, I've done that, did that, I'm good on that one. Yep, I'm good. But then he's honest and he says, but what do I still lack? But something is still broken in here. I'm still like, I hope I have enough and I heard about you. So can you give me something that I can do and tell people I did that too? And then Jesus puts the finger on his real issue, and that is you will not say you're poor in spirit. You will not say you're, you're blind and you're empty and you're poor. Go take all your possessions and sell them and give them away to the poor and come follow me. And he says, I can't do that. Why? Because in the spot of what fills it, he had his possessions, his fame, his life, and Jesus said, get rid of that and let me get on that throne. He's like, no way. And the Bible says, and he went away sorrowful. 
the Lord of life that gave him life stood there and said, you can have me or you can have you and your stuff that'll last for another few years. What's your choice? And he said, I'm gonna go with the stuff. And he missed the kingdom unless he had a change of heart sometime later. Don't respond that way, beloved. Remember back in the Old Testament, Naaman, Syria, he's got leprosy, servant girl. Hey, if you were in my home country, the prophet of God is there. And if you were there, he could heal, heal you. Really? Makes the journey. The king of Israel. What? What are you coming to me for? I can't heal anybody. The prophet sends them, servant, bring him to me. Doesn't even meet him at the door. Says, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He's offended. You know who I am. You know all the wealth I brought. This is ridiculous. We got beautiful rivers at home. I'll go home. And his servant is like, um, excuse me, sir. Just but before we make that long journey back that we just made here, if he would have asked you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? Yeah, I would have. He's asking you to go dip in the Jordan River. Why wouldn't you do it? Okay, I will. Now, just imagine this man of renown who's bearing this leprous skin as he's leaving his chariot, his entourage, and in front of them, swallowing hard, walking down the hillside, going into the filthy Jordan River, and how many times? Seven, and everybody's watching him. And in seven times of dipping, his pride is flowing down the river, and nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And over and over, he dips in the water, just simply obeying the man of God with the word of God. And on the seventh time, he comes up, and he's emptied of being filled with himself, and he comes up out of the water, and the Bible says his skin is like baby skin. Why? Because he admitted I've tried everything and it hasn't hit the spot. I still have leprosy. So I'll simply obey the word of God. And to do that, it requires what many people cannot do. Get low. Get humble. And if you come into the kingdom on that bottom rung of humility, guess what? You don't ever graduate from after you've been, I've been a Christian for 40 years. And guess what? We still are. I got nothing. Uh, except Jesus. And I've told you before, and I can say it again and never be lying when I say it, the best thing about me, the only thing good about me, it's Jesus. Do you have Jesus? Are you poor in spirit? Maybe today, for the first time, you'd be willing to admit, I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. I'm poor in spirit. Do you, wa do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Or do you carry them? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, for you? He hung there and bled and died for your sin, not for his, for yours. Are you ready to give him your heart and your life? The universal surrender, the sign of surrender. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross. I'll cling there. Confess your sin to God. Confess your need of Christ. Confess him as Lord. 
and he will come into your life and change you. Little by little, day by day. And what you used to see is, I can't do this. You'll say, I can't do this. But the God who lives in me, he will see to it that I become like this. Isn't this good? This is the gospel. And you pay me to do this. I get paid to do this. <laughs> Preach the gospel. And I thank you for that. It's a privilege. And we go through good times. Some of you are going through really hard. If all we have in life is here now, it's not enough. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, you are so good. You have given us your word and you have given us your son. And Jesus, you did not go unwillingly to the cross. You went to the cross. You laid down your life for sinners. And it's the good pleasure of our Father in heaven to give to his little flock the kingdom. So while the church may look insignificant and small, in reality, there are people all around the globe today who are gathering to worship Jesus. And you will be glorified. And you will call to salvation today through the proclamation of your word. So Lord, build your church. Save those who are in need of Christ today. And may we live to the praise and the glory and the honor of our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.